And we're going to start. Uh, we're going to start in First John four. So you can start turning to First John four, but we won't get to it for just a second. I want to tell you about my friend Stacy um, from sixth grade. I went to Rogers Middle School over in West San Jose, and uh, as this is a year of transition, I can remember very clearly transitioning to a new school. And now being in with the big kids in middle school and what a big deal that was. And one of the exciting things that came with that was yearbooks, but yearbooks meant something more in middle school than they had in elementary school. All of a sudden, everyone's running around signing it and all of this. And our big thing was KIT and stay cool and all, you know, have a good summer and these different things that you'd write. Those are the, to the people that you liked. Um, and then there's other things that people wrote that, you know, somehow would get in my book. But anyways, um, I remember this, uh, this world starting to open up to me in junior high. And it was like this mysterious forest called love and romance and the opposite sex. And it was mysterious and it was kind of this foreboding forest in a way. And I remember at the end of my sixth grade year coming across this information. I had been going around. I had lots of friends in middle school. and We were signing yearbooks and having a great time. And all of a sudden, someone came to me and told me that my friend Stacy, who up to this point I'd always considered a friend, um, she liked me. And this was brand new news to me, and I didn't know what to do with this information, but I thought that now that this girl liked me, or at least the rumor was that she liked me, I had some obligation to do something. So here's what I chose to do with that information. I went to Stacy. I mean, someone had to do something, right? I went to Stacy, and I asked her to sign my yearbook. Now, here's what Stacy said to me. She said, Dave, I already signed your yearbook. And now I had known this. But now that I knew that she liked me, I figured, I guess my logic was, she must want to sign it again and tell me her real feelings. So I said, yeah, I know that. Could you sign it again? So here's what Stacy did. True story. You could look up my yearbook today. She signs her name one more time. Like, okay, gives me her autograph. This is the awkward world of love in junior high, okay? This is how I started to kind of venture into it. I look back on that with regret. Fortunately, not much harm was done. I don't think Stacy even really knew the full story, other than Dave kind of lost it and wanted my autograph, thinking I'd be famous someday. Um, I bring that story up because of this. You probably, many of you in this room, could probably look back to your own uh, potentially awkward uh, romance starts. And uh, many of us, if we had our own stories flashed up on a screen or printed in a novel, would look to bury our heads somewhere and hide from the reality of what some of us have gone through in the whole arena of love. Let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever been in love? Now, Mark Lowry does this whole thing where, uh, at this point, you know, the married people better be nodding their heads, okay? I mean, some of you better be nodding or raising your hand or something. Okay, um, here's, here's the second question. Have you ever thought that you were in love only to find out, really, it wasn't love at all? You know, it was, it was a feeling, but it was, you know, it was bad pizza, or it was the moonlight, or it was something other than that, but it was definitely not love. Probably many in this room um, either long one day to really be in love and really find true love. <laughs> Or, um, or have their own stories of, yes, I am in love. Yes, I was in love. Yes, I once thought I was in love. Uh, yes, I wish I had better balance so I didn't keep falling in love with you know, everything that moved. I mean, these are the different phases that sometimes uh, people go through. 
Here's what you can tell. You can start to tell when you talk to someone just about their relationships and the stories of their life, kind of the things that define them. You can tell people who've really been in love. Because either they're talking in these dreamy kinds of, you know, world is wide open kinds of phrases uh, that, that sometimes take you off guard if you've known this person when, when they weren't in this state. Or sometimes you're talking to people and you realize as you're talking that, that they're on the bad end of a relationship or they've gone through a ton of hurt in their life. And yes, they have loved deeply. Yes, they have risked much. Yes, they have felt deep emotion, but now they're embittered and they're hurt by it. And you can just tell in a conversation. You can tell people who have ventured into deep love. Now, here's what I want to do with this series that we're going into is we're going to talk about our relationship with God. And I just want to throw out at the start of this um, that I will acknowledge to you, and I hope you can acknowledge this to yourself, that when we talk about some of the topics we're going to talk about in the next few weeks and read about some of the things we're going to read in the scriptures, um, it, it is a challenge. It's a challenge enough, is it not, to sort through and wade through Uh, the forest that is love in relationships with people we can see and talk to and read their facial expression. And now we're talking about doing that with an entity altogether different than ourselves and revealed in uh, not only a book, but in his spirit and in other ways. But it's a challenge and it's difficult. Let me put a, 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 a phrase on the screen that I think most everyone in this room will be comfortable with. Here's the reality. I think most people outside of this room are comfortable with this phrase. God is love. No one is squirming. No one is nervous when I say this. People in, just instinctively know this and say, yes, I think that that's in, in general true. Let me put up another phrase that might cause some to squirm. God is lover. And all of a sudden we go, wait a minute, with, with, uh, with the R not there, I'm cool with it, but God is lover, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. That makes me panicky. Get that off of there. Um, here's the reality though. Think about God and, and the creation story. God creates man and woman distinct. He creates them on purpose. He creates them in his own image, right? Man and women are made to be lovers. So all of a sudden we begin to see God, really, we're reflecting God. We're able to see in ourselves some picture of what God is. Consider Jesus who says this phrase, consider the lilies of the field. When Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, here's what he's not saying, engineer men. Ready? He's not saying, analyze them. Run tests on them. Give me specs on them. He's saying, considering in this way, behold them. He goes on to say this, Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. Jesus appeals to the beauty of flowers to reveal and talk about and discuss the love of God. Jesus moves about on earth, and we're going to look at this more in the future, um, as a lover. As one who comes and woos people to himself. We're going to talk a little bit here about left brain, right brain kind of stuff. You familiar with this? Uh, in general, I'm not, I'm not well studied in this, but I've done, I've done some study on this. Uh, but it's, it's a proven fact that, that men and women are wired differently. And those married couples are like, yes, amen. Those even in junior high are going, I get that. Yes, we are definitely different. 
Uh, one of the things that, that is true of, uh, of left brain is that it tends to hold the areas of logic, analysis, compartmentalization, that sort of thing. That's why, that's what makes those who are stronger left brained good at certain professions. They're able to compartmentalize and, and handle things that those who are more free thinking between the two aren't. There's also actually connectors between left and right brain that are different, right? We know this. Someone put it well. Uh, they said that in most women, there's an interstate going between left and right brain. And for men, there's a game trail. You know, so once in a while it connects, but you got to kind of, got to kind of find your way over there. Now, while all of this is true, um, I believe this is true also. I believe that every single human being must grow uh, in their walk with God, in their understanding, beyond mere reason. And I think that some people, I think many marriages and relationships suffer because men sometimes, especially in our culture, are given this free pass or this thing to hide against, well, I'm just a left brain male. And I just, I can't access that part of this Saturday other thing. I understand that it may be hard, gentlemen, uh, and some ladies who are, who are functionally left-brained, but the reality is that God created us with both of those capacities. And as we're going to see in the scriptures, God created us with, with the uh, capacity and, and ability to grow beyond that. So don't hide behind the, 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 the handicap, so to speak, of saying, what Dave's talking about in this series is fine for some people, but I'm doing just fine where it is. Uh, emotions in our culture, in our day and age, are, I think, one of two things. They're either suspect. There's some people who are all reason all the time, and all emotion is just suspect. You can't trust your feelings is a phrase that, that comes out of that. Um, you know, and, and so sometimes people start to hear emotions talked about and start to think back to some of their systematic theology and some of the propositional truths that are, that are absolutely undeniably proclaimed from this pulpit often. And they say that emotion, I, I just back away from that because I don't know where that leads and that goes all over the map and I get nervous with that. So it's either suspect or I would say in our culture, the other extreme is that it's supreme. There are some people you know, some of you may be them or they may live in your house or they may be in your family or at your office, but emotion is supreme. They live their life completely by emotion. And so what I want to do is say this. If you are in the camp where you're suspect of emotion and you just go, man, I don't know how that has any place in our walk with God. Aren't we just supposed to memorize uh, some commandments and some propositional truths and we're all good? I want to challenge those of you in that camp to come along for a ride. I want you to uh, look at the scriptures with me. Let the scriptures speak for themselves and see if God is not wooing you and drawing you beyond mere logic and reason. There are some of you, I think a smaller handful of you, that as we talk about this and your whole world and your whole life is just a giant ball of emotion uh, and you can't get a hold of it uh, and it's taking you every which way, I want you to actually see that there are, uh, there are backbone forming type truths that you can, that you can hang on to. There are rocks that you can grab onto and say, this is true. And so I don't have to, you know, just follow this world of emotion and point it wherever I feel like in that moment. So those are the two extremes all by way of introduction. I would challenge you or, in, or invite you, uh, this summer to fall in love all over again. And unlike many of our pictures in culture, uh, this is not dependent on the timing of birds flying by. It's not dependent on the timing of the sunset and that magical hour that it's going down. It's not dependent 
on you, you know, nudging in close but not too close. All these peripheral things that sometimes we paint a picture in our stories of that's, that's what gets it right. How fleeting is that? It's as fleeting as summer, isn't it? It's as fleeting as, you know, the birds leaving or starting to squawk and annoy you. It's as fleeting as the sun going down and you can't find your car keys, right? What I'm talking about is something deeper that, that is not dependent on those sorts of things. The way that I want to, to invite you into love is this. I realize I can't make you fall in love with God, but I can show you God. And I think the way that you can fall in love all over again is get to see the God of the Bible. There's a phrase out there that goes something like this, to know me is to love me, right? Now, that's really arrogant and really self-centered, um, but it's true of God. I really do believe that to know God is to love God, and to rediscover God is to reawaken parts of you that you re-fall in love and say, oh yeah. Some of you are already calling to mind, perhaps, a challenge in the Scriptures to a church in Revelation where it says, you've fallen far from your first love. Return to your first love. This is good for married people to do periodically. That's part of why we have anniversaries, I think. But it's also good for Christians to do as well. We're going to be in the Psalms this summer. And the Psalms, as you read through them, reveal a... Let me put in some adjectives uh, for God. They reveal a loving, beautiful, holy, intimate, serving, jealous, powerful, wise, and on and on I could go, God. That's who's in there. And as we read these songs, perhaps again for the first time, perhaps for some of you for the very first time, I hope that you will see that. David, of course, is the one who wrote the bulk of the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of your Bible. And, um, and he is unapologetic as emotion pours from his heart as he writes. He just writes all kinds of things. He talks about drinking from God's river of delight. He talks about how his lover has filled his heart with greater joy than all the wealth that others in this world have found. He cries in the night, aching and longing for... God to be near to such a degree that his body and soul are affected. He's actually panting for God. His soul thirsts for God. Now, let me just point something out. David is not in junior high here. He's not a teeny bopper writing this stuff. David is a grown man. He's, he's had years of battle-hardened uh, warrior leading behind him. He's a leader of a nation, and he's lovesick. Now, to put yourself in the Scriptures and to really read these with authenticity, I want you to imagine yourself for a second. You've got a 40-year-old friend. He's a male. He's high up in his company, and he's coming to you talking about being lovesick and that his stomach aches because, because he has to be near his lover. And he's using all this flowery language with you. Now, put yourself there for a second. You're around the water cooler at work. He's telling you this. Okay? Two things. What do you tell him? Okay, that's part one. But then let's get really honest. What are you thinking about him? Okay? Help me out with what you tell him. Tell me right now, how would you counsel him? What would you talk to him about? He's telling you these things. What would you say? 
<laughs> Good for you, okay? Take a vacation. Okay, there might be some steering away from it. Uh, talk to him about it. Man, I want to, I'm dying to hear more about this. This is really strange. Now, what are you, what are you maybe thinking in your mind, though? Grow up. Okay, what else? Midlife crisis. That was one of the first things that I thought. Yeah, go buy a Corvette or something. I don't know. Something's happening to you. What else? Awkward. Awkward. Okay. <laughs> so here's the reality. You might, you might look at this person and you might say one thing, but in your head you're going, man, you're a train wreck. You've got to pull yourself together. You need to grow up. You're not a teenager anymore. Here's David saying these things to God in such a way that I think most of us read that and, and we, just, we just say, man, that is foreign to my experience. And frankly, I think if I saw a grown man in his position doing that, it would freak me out a little bit. I would not know what to do with that. Here's a great reversal. The wife, his wife is coming to him and confronting him on basically his emotionalism. Okay? That's one of the great reversals in the Bible. She comes to him. At one point, he's coming in. And remember what he's doing? He's dancing. He's pulling off a, you know, so you think you can dance, you know, party going on right down the middle of the street. And his wife comes to him, confronts him on it. And basically, his response is this in 1 Samuel 6.22. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. You know what he essentially says? I don't care how I look. I'm in love. This is a conquering king. This is not CEO behavior at all. I don't see this in any of our books. Go and dance like a crazy person for the God that you love. That'll win you know, confidence in your followers. And yet that's what he does. Those of you who are in love, those of you who have been in love, understand this. I can't help myself. I don't, you're right, I'm out of my mind. I don't know why I'm acting this way. It's a little bit nuts to go buy 300 roses and cut them and spell her name out on the beach so that I can spend tons of money on a biplane to fly her over it so she can look at it. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what I did. I didn't really do that, I'm just saying. It's kind of a cool idea, isn't it? Actually, I might do that. Um... That doesn't make any sense. That's not really all that practical. You just killed a bunch of roses and they're just going to lay there on the beach and someone's going to get them. But you do those things because you're in love. And here, here it is right in the middle of the Bible and I think we sometimes miss this. The series title is called Smitten. It's on the front of your bulletin and the word smitten is this. Very much in love. Affected. Crazy. Hysterical. Fanatical. Let me give you some antonyms for this. Hate. Now, some of you already, I know, you're going, wait a minute, we shouldn't describe our relationship with God that way. What about order and reason? And what about some of these other things? I think we talk a lot about that. I think we do a good job of that, actually. Our church does a great job of that. I think sometimes that what happens, though, is we can really tilt in favor of one over the other. We can have all kinds of truth and lose the heart in it. I wonder if Jesus would look at our churches, some of our churches, and say, Bravo, you got that topic down nailed. You've got every verse almost on that topic. You've got great position papers. Love it. Where's the love? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. 
Somewhere along the line, you left the relationship. You left the love and you marched off after truth and, and, you, and you left me. Here's some antonyms to it. If you are uncomfortable with the word smitten in your relationship with God, how about this? Here's an antonym. Hate. Dislike. Here's perhaps the worst one. Indifference. Let's go back to the church in Revelation. Remember the church at Laodicea? What is Jesus' message to the church at Laodicea? Anyone remember? That's it. Man, I wish, I would, that you were hot or cold. As it is, you're lukewarm. And I will spit you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. I think that's, by and large, the American church. I think persecution will change that. If persecution's on the horizon for the American church, that's where it changes. No longer are you a Christian because it's convenient or there's good programs or whatever else. You're a Christian because you're all in. Jesus, you alone have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? It's really hard to be your disciple. But I'm not turning back. There's nothing for me in the old life. I found the treasure in the field, as Jesus said in a parable, and I went and sold everything. I went and did the unrational. Everyone else told me to grow up and think it through. I already had. I've made my decision. It's you. That's all I want in this life is you. That's a lovesick person doesn't mean logic's out the window. I mean, they're making the greatest logical choice they could make, but they are all in. Let me read you another passage, Jesus' warning in Matthew 24, 12. It says, And because of lawlessness, and because lawlessness will be increased. Are we in an era where lawlessness seems to be on the rise? I think so. I mean, it's been here since the dawn of time, but it's around. Here's what it is. The love of many will grow cold. The reason for this series this summer is that I don't want our church, I don't want in my life for the love of me and my Lord to grow cold. And I know His love isn't growing cold toward me, so I just want to pray to bring you along with me as I discover and we read and we get challenged from God's Word to stoke the fires of our love relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.14, I know I have you in 1 John, but you'll have to just trust me, I don't have it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.14 is an interesting passage. And some of what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is talking about this. Listen to this. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Built into this passage and the verses following is the gospel. That's the power of salvation, right? So the love of Christ controls us. And I think some of what I'm looking at moving forward is, what does it look like to have the love of Christ control you? Ron is heading out of town relatively soon. We have a group of uh, people who left this morning, and we're leaving tomorrow morning for Mexico. What does it look like for a week in Mexico to just say every day, Lord, I want the love of Christ to control me? Why would that even begin to take place? Because we're convinced of this, that he died for us. We're convinced of the gospel, and that now controls me. That sounds really freaky, cultish, and scary to those who don't understand the, the, the Bible as a whole or the gospel spe uh, specifically. That sounds really creepy, doesn't it? I mean, haven't you shared with people before, and you say, yeah, I'm, tr I'm, I'm allowing God to conform me into, into His image. You mean like mind control? Absolutely, I take every thought captive to Christ. You mean that he gets to choose where you spend your money? Absolutely, that's all yielded to him. It's all his. 
That sounds really foreign until you've experienced it, until you've walked in it, and you say, Lord, I give you it all. Controlled by Christ's love. How does that look? What does that look like? 1 John 4.16. I hope you're there. 1 John 4.16 gives us some uh, pictures. Some of us have to uh, need to have the love uh, that's, that's in our mind. What we're talking about when we use the word love to let it be defined by the Bible. Some of you have a great handle on what the word love means because you're a student of the word. And you're loved by God and know God and you've come to conform your picture of that to God rather than what you've been handed maybe in your life. How damaging is it to have a parent uh, or, or someone in authority over a child communicate I love you uh, while at the same time abusing them in some way, shape, or form, while at the same time abandoning them. That can then begin to link parent figure with that. That can begin to link the word love with something I don't want to be in ever again. So we want to look to the scriptures for that. Uh, here's just a, a brief overview of some of what we're going to talk about this summer. First John 4, starting in verse 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Skip down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If you are smitten with God, if you are lovesick with God, know this. It is because He was first lovesick for you. He was first smitten with you. And that's the only capacity any of us even have to be in love with God. Therefore, do we take any credit for pursuing or loving God? No. There's not one righteous, there's not one who turns to me of his own accord. We love and have the capacity to love because God first loved us. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says this, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now there's a whole sermon to unpack there. Doesn't God know everything? Yes, he does. But what it's saying by known there is this. He's in relationship with God. The capacity to love comes from him. All right, we'll get to our passage now. That's all by way of introduction. Flip open to Psalm 73. This will be the easiest summer of finding verses. Open your Bible to the middle and go left or right, and you're pretty close. Psalm 73. By the way, here's a little uh, reading challenge for you, something that I've done for a long time. Uh, some, of you have, some of you have rigorous reading plans and you like order. You like to check something off. You like to know that you've gotten through a section of Scripture in X amount of time. Frankly, that's me. I like to do that stuff. But some of you are a little skelter. You go, where do I start? Where do I read? Whatever. Here's a challenge for you. Maybe you've got another reading plan and you just want to start your day off before you even get to your reading plan. Here's what I would challenge you. Open up to a psalm. Read it. Whatever psalm, you just read it. Open up wherever you want. When you get done reading it, take a pencil and put a check off next to that number. Day after day, you just keep putting a check mark, and then you get to one that doesn't have a check mark, you read that one. Guess what? After roughly 150 days or readings, you'll be done. You'll have read the whole book of Psalms. The book of Psalms can read that way. You can read it start to finish, but you can also read it kind of jumping around that way. When you're done, start over. 
and just read it again. And what you're going to do is you're going to see kind of a breadth of things. I have time this summer for, for very limited little snapshots of things, but there's so much more in there. You know what I like to do too? Uh, today, three of our songs are found in this passage. When I'm reading through my devotions and I read a lyric that we sing in church, I write the title of that worship song down. And I just go, wow, that's, that's this song. It's taken right from Scripture. We are singing love songs to God. Sometimes I think we forget that. We're singing. We're singing to God. But we're singing back to God. We're singing love songs to God. And some people are so uncomfortable with that. And yet that's really what the book of Psalms is all about. Let me give you a very quick overview. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to draw out a couple of things. Um, First, starting in just 1 to 3, he sets it up really well. By the way, this is a psalm of Asaph. Uh, This begins to shift uh, here. He wrote uh, the next several in this. And some of your Bibles will will note that, that that he wrote this. Psalm 73, verse 1 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In the first three verses, he kind of sets a few things up. One is this. He begins by affirming God's goodness. Um, he then begins to relate his own experience to this. Some people are, are really down on worship music that always talks about from a human perspective. I get that if your whole worship experience is all about me and my feeling toward God and my perspective on God, rather than God-centered, you get way skewed thinking you're the center of the universe. However, in the scriptures, we see the psalmist relating back their own experience. Several times in this book, or in this uh, song, he says, but as for me. And so he's, he's tying his experience to it. And what he says is that he almost slips. What's his offense? How, how does he almost slip? He almost slips by envying the wicked. That's his, that's his deal. You ever been there? You ever envied the arrogant or the wicked before? I sure have. I have, I for a long time was a bank teller. And as a bank teller, I was studying to, uh, to become a, a, a youth pastor. Um, youth pastors is not, being a youth pastor is not a career you go into for the lucrative amount of money in it. Okay, it's just known. That's not the, the deal if you're doing it right. Um, I'm in Bible college. I'm broke. I make very little money. I'm working extremely hard. And I worked in a part of town that was across the street from a strip club. And it was down the street from porn shops. And it was down the street from the sleaziest used car dealers and used boat dealers you could possibly imagine. These were the people I saw on a daily basis. Not only did I see them, but I interacted with them. Not only did I see and interact with them, but I saw the amounts of money that they were depositing into their accounts. I saw firsthand what they had. One guy in particular liked to show off to me. He knew anyone who sat at my window for more than three seconds knew I was a Christian. And we started, I just used that to, to practice preaching, basically. That's, that's how I learned to preach. Um, but they got a huge kick out of this. Uh, those who were reveling in evil... Those who were selling evil and destroying people's lives loved to come and say, would you check this account for me? And I would check it. Now, the federal government insured at that time, I think up to, um, I don't even remember, I think it was $100,000, let's say, per account. So this guy would run through one account and then another account and then a third account and then a fourth account and then a fifth account, then a sixth account, then a seventh account. Guess what? 
every one of those was over the limit of what the federal government insured. In other words, every one of those had over $100,000 in it. Do you know why he wanted the balance over and over? By the way, this is pre-smartphone. Some of you are like, just check your phone, buddy. This is a long time ago. You know why? He was reveling in his wealth. He was saying to me, I'm of value. I have these things. Some, I, I, this is so bizarre. They would come in and show me a picture of the yacht they're con- contemplating buying. Do you like this yacht or this yacht better? And I'd be like, if you can't water ski or wakeboard behind it, why? Why? What, why who, who cares, you know? And here's what I saw over and over. We're not going to read the rest of this psalm, but what this guy does is this. He begins to doubt and say, Lord, is what I have in my salvation with you, is that a better gig than what the wicked have? I mean, they're fat. Their bodies are sleek. They never have want. Here are some things that I heard tumble out of their mouth. Prideful and violent words, scornful words, malicious words, arrogant in their lifestyle, and the fact that many were affected by their evil. That's what this psalm goes on to paint a picture of that. You ever been there? You ever wondered if you've made the right choice? Jesus, I've come to you and I've left everything. Is that right? Is that the, is that the best way to go? I don't always know. When you question what you have in your salvation, in your relationship to God, what you're doing is this. You're taking part in, in a relationship. Because every lover in every relationship at some point is going to wonder, am I in the right relationship? Is this the right one? Becky and I are doing some premarital counseling right now. That's a good message. Those of you who have influence in young couples, you tell them that. Tell them it's okay to wonder that. That's not the sin. The sin now is what do you do with that temptation? The temptation is this. The lie is this. The pasture is greener over there. Without ever having to go and taste that, I know that's a lie. And I believe that's a lie. Because I've watched that be a destroying influence in family after family after family. And I'm the result of part of that. That's my own family. Every lover in every relationship at some point is wondering. So many are duped into a relationship-ending trade. And it's a downgrade. Much to their shock and amazement. The grass wasn't greener. The grass was poisonous over there. And when you long to come back, it's gone. You've lost what you have. You know how this looks in marriage. What about our walk with God? Do we envy the wicked? Are you sitting in here today wondering... Is this the right way to go? I'm about ready to to lose it. Now there's a turning point. Look at verse 17 in Psalm 73. Here's the turning point. Psalm 73, 17. Until he's going through all these things. I was a beast toward you. I was all these different things. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end, where the wicked end up. There I got perspective, is what he's saying. 
At that point, he's doing what we see in Colossians 3.2. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. On my best days, and frankly on most days, you know what I did when I saw a yacht? I thought, man, give me a big lighter. Let me show you what the Bible says about yachts. It's all going to burn. You know what I thought on most days, by the grace of God, about the hundreds of thousand dollars when I could barely afford my top ramen with my wife or whatever stage I was in? I thought, man, you could die tomorrow and all of this is gone. It's a whisper. It's a vapor. You know how I did that? I was in God's Word all the time. I was a Bible college student. My nose was in the book and God had me in a great place. My heart was in a right place looking after Him. I got to dwell in the sanctuary, so to speak, and keep a right perspective. And when I felt my heart longing for these other things, going, it's not fair, God. It's not fair that He gets a life of ease and I don't. The loving discipline of the Lord would would guide me back to the truth to be able to see the end of the wicked. He sees the wicked for what they are, a fantasy, a counterfeit of reality. Here I am at a bank. In essence, it's all counterfeit. A lot of the stuff this guy was building his life on, these guys were building their life on, was counterfeit. For some of it, you know what it was? It wasn't stuff. It wasn't yachts and all that. You know what this one guy came in every single time with? A story of how he'd ripped someone off. This was a used car dealer, by the way. No offense to car dealers in here. But his, his badge of honor, his value, was how he was so much more clever than the other person. And he was conquest after conquest after conquest. And very little conscience to it. Didn't, didn't care on his end. Just that he had the dough and he had duped that person out of their dough. He was, he was a counterfeit and that's what the wicked are. His doubt evaporates as he recounts what he has in God. Now look at the closing part of the chapter with me. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We just sang everlasting God. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. We'll sing that shortly. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What's the turning point? The turning point is that it was better to have one day in the sanctuary of God to, to run to that sanctuary, regain clear perspective and say, all the other stuff doesn't matter. As long as I have a right relationship with you, as long as I'm near to you, it, that's all I need. You know what's great about that song, Better Is One Day, that we just sang? I don't know if you caught this. There were tons of beautiful pictures of churches, steeples, and all kinds of amazing architecture. As I see that... I look at that and I praise God that we're in a season of time now where we don't go to a physical place to be in God's presence. Amen? Isn't that a glorious truth? Where do you run into the sanctuary of God? Wherever you are, Christian, that's where you go. You're at the water cooler. You're in your car. You're at home on your bed. 
You run into the sanctuary of God because He's with you always. Now we can still, there's still something powerful that comes together with God's people. Don't stop showing up to church. I've got another verse for that. But don't stop showing up to church. But the point is, you don't have to come here to pray. You don't have to come here to meet with God. You don't have to come here to get perspective and have a turning point and have your doubts erased. You run into the sanctuary of God. You open the word and you say, God, I want to meet with you right here and right now. And he says, I'm here, son. I'm here, daughter. Let's go. And you get your perspective. The words in here that pertain to God that I just read are belong, hold, guide, lead, remains, shelter. That's our lover. That's who he is. And here's the response of Asaph as he writes this. That God is his desire. That you are mine. And that you are near. I hope today to drive this point home that you understand that the one that you're smitten with, the one that you're in love with is near. When God is near, it changes everything. The enemy wants to convince us otherwise. I'm going to throw some scriptures up very quickly. Don't turn to them, just write them down. But Hebrews 13.5 says this, Although the enemy wants to convince us otherwise, but God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Not a great statement of faith. What can man do to me? Really? I'm in a love relationship with the creator of every man and woman I come across. Some of you are in dire circumstances right now. I know this because you've shared this with me and my heart is burdened for you and I'm praying for you and I'm calling out to God for you. But let the practical reality of perfect love driving out any fear come true in your life. Not just for future judgment, but perfect love casting out any fear because the one you're in love with is sovereign. He's a huge God that can handle what's coming your way and already has. The answer may already be in your hands today. God's nearness changes everything. I had an older brother one time that was assigned to walk with me home from elementary school because I was getting bullied by this kid. I was in, I don't know, third, fourth grade. My brother was in high school. At that point, he might as well be Thor or something. I mean, he's just, he's a whole different class of person. And he walked with me and that changed my walk for a few days and it changed the perspective of my relationship with this guy. Later became friends with him. It's a good, good gig. Um, but, uh, but for that season of time, him walking with me changed everything for me. It changed my fear into confidence. Deuteronomy 31 says this, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Not only that, but our lover reassures us of this often. I lived with a guy in Colorado for a season. I was engaged to Becky. She was living in San Jose. I was in Colorado. He was engaged to, to a girl in San Jose, and we were both in Colorado. This guy's a musician. He's a great friend of mine, and, um, and he would be on the phone, and their little gig, I mean, you know, relationships all take on different forms, Right? So me and Becky would talk, and, and both Becky and I are, are romantics, you know, in, in some, some, some level, but, but the way that we talked was, was dry and matter-of-fact compared to my buddy and his, and his girlfriend. And here's what he would do. He would, it's a small place, so I could hear him anywhere in the, in the house. And here's what he'd do. He'd be on the phone. He'd be like, I know, I know, baby. Yeah, I know. Dave's here, though. I know. I know. Okay. 
Good night, schnookums. You know, and he would say these little, you know, and, and then, and then it would go, this would go on for 20 minutes every night, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm exhausted for you. I said, you know, that's just, that's gotta be tiring. I said, you know, can we record you so that you just played and I don't know, something has to change. But his level of reassurance, it had to go on and on and on. I get that there's states between us. It made me thankful that me and Becky were more on the same page where I'd say, I love you. I really do. Good night. And it was, you know, it was a little shorter. Um, but here's the Lord over and over. And some of you have tasted this firsthand in a hundred different ways. But the Lord Jesus reassuring you, I'm with you. Reassuring you, I'm here. Reassuring you, son, daughter, lover, I'm here for you. Here's, here's what he says uh, in, in the book of Haggai. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, a prophet, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. It's worth a prophet coming in and saying that. That's a message I hope you hear over and over in your Christian walk. Now, after this prophet, God appears to be silent for hundreds of years. And then along comes this uh, message and these actions. Matthew one twenty two. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He prophesies, saying, I'm with you. And then he comes in bodily form, and the name given is God with us. I think of all my names for Christ, that might be my all-time favorite. It's not just a Christmas story. Jesus is born. He's the fullness of God in our midst. And then as he's leaving, he says this in Matthew 28, And be sure of this. Get this down, not just in knowledge, but in application, in experience. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Shortly after Jesus leaves, almost like a scorned lover, where's Peter? He's back on a boat fishing. He's confused and he's hurt because the relationship doesn't go exactly how he imagines it. Jesus had just promised him, he's risen from the dead. This is the risen Jesus appearing. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then in a short period of time, Peter's back on the boat fishing. And then Jesus is on the shore, calls to him. He realizes who it is. What does Peter do, remember? Yeah, I mean, they're paddling in and the, the, the boat is not going fast enough. Clothes and all, Peter just jumps in and does, you know, the 100-yard the dash, Michael Phelps move. And he's like, I have to get to the beach where my lover is. That's my life on the beach. That's where my life belongs. Not on this boat, but on the beach, wherever Jesus is. That's where my life is. And then soon after that, he's taken up and they don't see him physically anymore. But Peter's a different guy from that point on. Paul, at one point, frustrated with ministry in the city of Corinth. People are opposing him. He's sharing with them. He's kind of fed up. Acts 18.9 says this, One night the Lord spoke to, Pete, to, to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. Reassuring Paul. And no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. It changed, it altered the course of his life because he found that out. God's nearness to us changes everything. Ben, would you come on up? Just by way of conclusion, 
this morning. My challenge to you, my invitation to you is not to fear, but rather to rest, to remain in the nearness of God. Asaph is writing a song, and in the midst of the song, he basically says, I came to my senses. I was tempted to slip. I was tempted to chuck it all and make a horrible trade. But he comes to his senses as he's in the sanctuary. He was willing to go without anything material in this life so long as he had a proper relationship with God, so long as he was near to God. Is that you today? Have you left it all? Is it worth it to say, I would have everything go away, including my health, so long as I was near to God? Is He enough? We're going to sing two songs right now. One is taken right from here. The nearness of God is our good. And then we're going to sing a song that's convicting. And that's this. It's calling out to our lover and saying, you're enough. You're all I need in this world. If you're married, I want you to hold the hand of your spouse when you sing that. And I want you to hold the hand of your spouse saying, God, that means even if my spouse were to get sick and die, I would trust in your sovereignty. If you've got your kids near them, put your arm around them and say, Lord, they're my life. I love these kids, but they're not my all in all. That's only you. I entrust this family to you that you've entrusted to me. If it's your career or whatever else you might hold dear, that's what we're talking about. Here's my one application. Okay, it's really, really simple. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. As we sing, use the music to do this. As you walk out of here, use your life to do this. This is a part of what it looks like to have the love of Christ control you, is that you draw in near to God. What about when I sin and when I stray? God's provided a way for that. If you confess your sins, He is faithful, He is just to forgive you your trespasses and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Sin will always separate relationships. Draw near to Him. Run back into Him. Let Him be what He is, a sanctuary in this world for us.